All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege, this wonderful privilege to gather together as family this morning. Thank you for providing us the blanket of freedom to do so in this wonderful country of ours. Thank you for the men and women who have fought and continue to fight for this freedom that provides this ability even to worship openly uh, our Lord and Savior without being attacked the way so many are in this world. Thank you for giving us this building, Father, so we can gather together. We know the church is not a building, but an, organ, an organism uh, that's alive uh, in the world. And, but we still do appreciate the grace that this building represents, Father. We also thank you so much for giving us the inspired Word of God so that we, after salvation, even understand and continue to grow in your grace and knowledge that we're able to take uh, this and use it as a source of motivation to go out and evangelize and fulfill the Great Commission, Father. What a privilege this is. May we never become familiar with it. Of course, we are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on that cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt against us so that even a morning like this one, Father, is something that we can appreciate and enjoy. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I may have to clear my throat from time to time, um, so just bear with me. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation. It's part four of Remember, Don't Forget, the grace the Lord your God has shown you. And I'll say this, uh, if you missed any of the previous three lessons, I'd highly recommend you grab a cup of coffee or whatever it is you choose to drink in the morning. Mimosa? Bloody Mary? I don't know. Now that's dissipation, all right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> grab a cup of coffee or whatever your Bible and some quiet time to listen to them. It's really important, folks. Uh, as I intimated on Thursday, the following verse applies to this precious church of ours. Um, and I know a lot of you don't like when the shepherd starts a class on a lovely Sunday morning this way, but it's real. Um, and our enemies know this, that Luke eleven seventeen part B any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. We're actually going to talk about houses and households even today. Some more. But this was the principle that Jesus stated himself. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. Um... Those are the words of our Lord uh, in His absolute perfect wisdom. This is a house. This is what we might call our house of worship, the house of God even. Um, and Satan's constantly <clears throat> trying to divide it. He's not coming in with a chainsaw, obviously. So we're speaking figuratively. He's always trying to sow discord to cause division, um, not so long ago in our lessons, 
the Spirit brought up the idea of fiery darts, even. Uh, these are real things. We don't see fiery darts, do we? I mean, this isn't, uh, you know, Braveheart. But we, there is such a thing as fiery darts, and they're more real and more effective than the darts you might see in a battle scene. Um, and I think people, people just get complacent. We're going to talk about that this morning. Because we can't see it, we think that it's not real. And that is a huge mistake that Satan and our enemies are banking on. They're banking on it. That we, what, dismiss it? That we pretend that um, these things don't exist? But here's the catch-22 regarding what the Spirit's saying here already this morning. The ones who are saying to themselves right now, I don't see what pastor's talking about. I don't see these attacks. I don't know what he's talking about. He seems paranoid to me. These are the ones I'm most concerned about. Go to, uh, why? Why? Go to Ephesians 6.12. <clears throat> Ephesians 6.12. People that respond to an opening to a lesson like this that way, frankly, those are the ones I'm most concerned about. And so, this scripture is for you. Ephesians 6.12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's an entire army aligned against us. Remember, Satan himself swept away one-third of all angels. So that means one-third of all angels are demons. And they're around us. And they're also the ones, uh, frankly, that are tossing fiery darts at us, that are trying to divide this house, trying to divide your house when you go home. And he's very effective. But because we can't see him and his, his agents, we think they don't exist or we become complacent or we don't like to think that such things exist because they're invisible. <clears throat> so like a broken record, I'm going to say it again. Some of you are being drawn out to sea while you're sipping mixed drinks with the world. Some of you need to listen to what this vessel has been commissioned to say to you this morning. Don't become complacent. Don't become familiar. Why? As I've taught many times from this pulpit, familiarity breeds complacency. When you become familiar, even with your own life, you become complacent. And you know how that gets, so it's kind of like, wheel. And you just kind of like get up in the morning, you get your coffee, you go on your way, you drive to work, you do this routine, you do that routine, and you start being lulled into this thing called routine. And you're no longer examining, examining yourself the way you should. 
I'll give you an analogy. <clears throat> I lived uh, roughly three and a half years in Hawaii while stationed at Hickam Air Force Base. Um, as you can imagine, beaches in Hawaii were usually packed. And I remember having a part-time job as a security guard down near uh, the beach. And one time while on duty, I had to help the medics as they ran up Waikiki Beach with a young Japanese man on a stretcher. They weren't, or they were trying to feverishly resuscitate him, but they couldn't. And I remember his color more than his face even. He was bluish gray, that's what I remember, covered in sand. I overheard someone say that he got swept out beyond his ability to swim right from the beach. Now, this is a benign-looking beach. I mean, this is Waikiki Beach, right? You usually see it on the postcard with Diamond Head in the background. You know, it's like, oh, Hawaii, welcome from Hawaii, or hello from Hawaii. Aloha, yeah, the guy, aloha. <laughs> so he gets swept out right from the beach, right from this paradise setting. So the question, you know, for you, I guess, is have you ever been in a beach in the undertow or the undercurrent very subtly takes you out over your head. I remember doing that as a kid at uh, Horseneck Beach, playing, you know, frolic and wee. Next thing you know, you're like, I can't touch the ground anymore. So I remember that happening several times in my life, not just in Hawaii, but anywhere where there was an undertow. In most cases, I had become complacent because I had ventured to and from the water without any problems. You know, I just sort of went in, went out. I'm like, well, I don't feel anything. You know, you go in, you play. One day it's there, one day it's not. Sometimes it's stronger than the next day. In other words, things change. You know, environmental variables change. Our enemies aren't stupid. They don't throw fiery dots from the same place every time. These con they're constantly changing. So while you're building this little routine, they're changing. Again... <clears throat> familiarity breeds complacency. You know, no one sets out to drown. No, I mean, look. however, undercurrents can easily take a person from a place of safety to danger. They are the sinister darkness that far too few consider as they frolic in the sun. Lifeguards may blow whistles but still, people drown all the time. No one sets out. But there's this unseen force. I mean, you don't see an undertow. It's unseen. It takes you out, but it's slow. Right? It takes you out. And the next thing you know, you're over your head. And you weren't paying attention to the lifeguards who were blowing their whistle and saying, get back in, you know, get back in. Likewise, we pastors may be blowing our whistles until we're blue in the face, but people are still drifting out over their heads, even drowning all around us. And over the years, I've had to watch countless people drift out to sea, even from the safety of this church. Even from the safety of this church. Why? Because they got complacent. I could see it. I mean, even like, where is everybody again? I know some people are sick and what have you, but 
This is what I'm talking about. Some people aren't here because they're out over their head right now. And I warn them, and I blow the whistle, and everybody's like, oh, shut up, Baldy. Right? You're getting like a broken record. Yeah, no kidding. So why don't you just comply, and I can get my voice back, and we can move on. Nope. I got it. I don't hear the whistle. And the next thing you know, whoop, whoop. Now they're out to sea. They can't touch the ground. Now what? They got complacent. And I warned them. The Spirit warned them. Satan got them focused on the so-called fun stuff. Whatever that is. You know, the sun, the beach, the sand, the beach bodies. You know, the tan lines and the concession stands. You know, the vain things in life that divert our attention from the Lord to the world. All the while, Satan's slowly eroding their undistracted devotion to the Lord. And frankly, this is by far my greatest, yet most common fear as a pastor. Undercurrent. Watching people drift out to sea. And I'm blowing the whistle, and I'm blowing the whistle, and I'm blowing the whistle. And nobody wants to hear it. La, 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 la. It's absolutely heart-wrenching to watch from the lifeguard stand. It's like watching Satan pick budding flowers off of the rose bush. And there's nothing I can do but watch as the now disconnected bud shrivels up and dies in his hands. And he's smirking at me. And I hate him for it. Just so you know, though, as I wrote in my most recent blog entry titled The Dance, to borrow from Mr. Garth Brooks, I'm not saying it's a lost cause. Up here on the board. I could have missed the pain, but I'd have to have missed the dance. I could have missed the pain, but I'd have to have to miss the dance. Well, frankly, I like dancing too much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so not all is lost, but that is a warning once again to all of you. And it's that same old thing. It's like, geez, you know, the people that really need to hear it, they're not here. You know what I'm saying? Some of you are like tippy-toeing right now, so you need to hear it. And you're like, oh, I can still get back. And the sand's just slipping out underneath your toes. But the people who are out to sea, la, 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 la. They're not hearing this lesson because they're not even here. That's what I'm saying. That's why so much work goes into telling you ahead of the game. Believe this, please. Believe this. Believe this before you too get dragged out to sea. With that said, let me recap this past week's lessons. 
as is often the case, the Spirit's basically telling us, listen, I'm just trying to change your perspective. I just want you to wake up. I want you to see things the way the Lord sees them. We often need to step back, take a deep breath, see the big picture, and receive a change of perspective from the Spirit. I was talking to a good friend, an old friend of mine yesterday for some time, and we both, you know, sort of laughing about how quickly a perspective can change everything. And yet a perspective takes this long to change. It's the beauty of perspective. If you're open to a change, things can change immediately. The emphasis and the lessons have been on remembering, particularly the grace of our Lord. So we asked why, and that sort of got us postured. Why? Why all this work on remembering the grace of our Lord? And here's what the Spirit gave us. <clears throat> the more we remember, the more we love. The more we love, the greater we become like God. We love because He first loved us. 1 John 4.19 The one who is forgiven much. In other words, the one who remembers where God plucked them from. Remembers where they came from. Remembers how wretched wretched they were born. Remembers where they were previously in the throes of spiritual death, dead carcass, necros, unable to do anything to save themselves. That person loves much. That's what the Spirit's saying. The one who is forgiven much loves much. Luke 7.39-47, we even read that parable. Concentrate. On Thursday, we kept addressing this question. Why all this emphasis on remembering? It kept coming back. And there was basically a variety of angles that the Spirit gave us that we're going to review here this morning with some additional color. We continued developing the answer to this question by looking at it from a variety of angles. The first angle was the, what I'll call the multitasking lie. This idea, this lie being, of course, that we humans think, this is, the, this is funny, we humans think we can actually multitask, but we can't. Multitasking is an illusion. It's an illusion. I gave you something that I got from Dr. Guy Winch that was posted on Forbes.com. Multitasking isn't what you think. You're really just switching back and forth between tasks really quickly. That's what Guy Winch, Ph.D., has to say on that. And he's not the only one. I mean, I just plucked that out. It was like the first hit. I've known this for many years, that we can't multitask. It's, a, it's an illusion. So suffice to say, there's no such thing as multitasking. It's impossible to multitask effectively. In fact, there's really no such thing. The human brain is a lot like a computer in this sense. A computer chip, though it appears to be doing several things simultaneously, really isn't. It's doing things serially. 
just really fast. And that's why computers are actually better at the illusion, creating the illusion of multitasking than the human brain is even. Because computers are really fast at switching. And there's no emotional anything, there's no stickiness to anything. It's just like... And so you're moving your mouse and there's video playing and there's a, a document scrolling and, you know, there's little things. Oh, hey, how you doing? You know, text messages. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? And everybody's like, oh, my God, this is great. I'm, like, multitasking. No, you're not. You're going this just really fast. Right? It's one of the reasons why um, you have a 23 times more a greater chance of causing a severe car accident if you're texting and driving. It's because you can't multitask. That's the whole point. It's just sheer luck while you're doing this that you're not killing somebody. And you're just rolling the dice every single time. Anyway. It's impossible for us to have our eyes simultaneously on Christ, a.k.a. be filled with the Spirit, because that's what it means. Read Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 together. And on something ungodly. We can't. That's the point. Because here's Jesus over here, and here's the distraction. We're either looking at Jesus, or we get distracted. We might do this. (laughs) You might do, don't make me do that again, right? You might do that really fast, but the reality is you're just playing a game. That's an illusion. You don't get to do and be present in both at the same time. You're either looking at him or you're looking over here. You're looking at him or you're looking at Which is why some of you, during this class, will drift out a little bit and then come back. I wonder how the Pats are going to do. Who's the Pats playing again? Oh, yeah, the ball guy, yep. I, you, that's why you miss some. I mean, I've had honest people tell me, myself even. I didn't even, you know, I listened to the lesson again. I don't even remember you saying that. That's because you were drifting on, you were, your little, you were drifting out there with your little buddy on the sea. <laughs> right? So, multitasking is an illusion. This is precisely why I have such an honest ah, love affair with the Word of God. I love it. There's nothing like it. It's because even as an accomplished, formally trained computer engineer, there's nothing new under the sun. There's just not. There's nothing new under the sun. We don't multitask. We can't. And when Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, those aren't vapid, empty words that just sound nice. They are absolutely true. Again, the point on the board up here. It's impossible to multitask effectively. In fact, there's really no such thing. It's impossible for us to have our eyes simultaneously on Christ a.k.a. be filled with the Spirit, and on something ungodly. Go to 1 Corinthians 10, 21. 1 Corinthians 10, 21.
<clears throat> just for some scripture on this topic itself. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? You can't do both. Do you understand? You just can't. You can't do both. You can't partake of both cups, in other words. You're either here or there. Or there or here. You can't do both. Do you understand? So, if we concede that we can't multitask in the spiritual life, then what does this mean, practically speaking? Because this is not what we want to get to. I mean, it's one thing to be convicted by the Spirit on theology uh, that's in the Bible, and we say, oh, that's great, you know, I walk away convicted, but isn't, isn't the spiritual life an active thing? Isn't this something we kind of do? Didn't James say that, don't just be hearers who delude themselves, but be doers of the Word? In other words, isn't there an activity, isn't there a practical side to the spiritual life? Yeah. And the Spirit never lets us off the hook. Never. So, if we can't multitask, what does this mean, practically speaking? It means that if our attention is diverted to something ungodly, it cannot be on Christ where it's supposed to be. That's what it says. So, in this sense, for the moment, we have forgotten about Jesus Christ, the true vine, the source of our sustenance. I'm talking about in the moment. Pressing on now, the Spirit took our efforts one step further by bringing up the concept of the sin of omission. Again, what's the question on the table? Why all this work on remembrance or remembering the grace of God? That's the question that we're working out in our own souls. So the Spirit took us to another angle, if you would, and He brought up the sin of omission. For the fundamental reason that you don't understand something's missing unless you look. A a quick analogy would be, off the top of my head, um, if I tell people, which I'm never going to do, by the way, hey, just... I'll leave the door to my garage open, go in my big old tool cabinet, take, you know, borrow whatever you want. I'm not going to do that, by the way. Okay, just saying. But suppose I did that, right? And I let that happen for years and years. And, you know, there was hundreds of people that just went in and out and borrowed stuff. And, okay. If I never actually went through the drawers of my toolbox to see if something was what? Missing. I would never know. I actually have to examine. I have to actually inventory the tools. Right? And God says to inventory yourself to see if something's not there that should be there. That's called a sin of omission. I'm supposed to be doing something that I'm not. The command says to do this, and I don't. Right? The sin of commission is like more like, well, I'm not supposed to do that, 
Don't put your finger in the light socket, right, little kid? <laughs> Told you. That's doing something you're not supposed to do, but there's also the flip side, which is not doing something you're supposed to do. Okay? The only way you discover this one is when you inventory. That's where we're at. Okay? So another analogy <clears throat> for you. I remember watching and crying, literally, as a completely distraught mom was explaining to a judge how she left her baby in the car and it died. It was awful. I remember just weeping. This woman was completely distraught, ruined. I did not think about it because I'll start crying. She was utterly destroyed. And you could almost sense the bitter judgmental tone in the faces around her. You know, what, what, you know how it goes. What a horrible, horrible human being you are. And of course, the media is right there, pouncing. This woman's like worse than Satan himself. Almost as if they're, you know, collectively partaking in the crucify her, crucify her, crucify her. That was the sense of what you got. And uh, it was obvious if you were paying attention that she simply forgot, as odd as that sounds, she forgot about her child for a moment and got distracted in the very worst of ways. And I'm going to say this boldly as a parent, any parent that says they've never done that is a liar, is a flat-out liar. Every parent loses track of their kid for a moment. Every parent is trying to multitask and can't do it. Unless you got that thing strapped to a papoose. Is that what they call those things? The Indian thing? Is that what it's called? Papoose? Thank you. Right? A papoose. And you, you literally sleep and feed it from the side and, you know, just hold it over the toilet, you know. Unless that's what you're doing, there's a good opportunity. Sorry, TMI. That's what I did because I was such a great parent. I never forgot about my kid once. Ever. I still do it with Joey. He's heavy now, but... And the papoose is enormous. It looks like, like an army parachute, but a strong back. <laughs> so anybody, any parent that says that is a liar. So who do we to judge? You know, how could a loving mother ever leave her baby in a car? on a 100-plus degree day with the windows rolled up? The answer is easy because we humans are incapable of multitasking. We're incapable. And as such, eventually one of the balls we are juggling falls. And if that ball is brittle, like the life of a baby, then it breaks. The point is, as we continued to develop the answer to the running question why all this work on remembrance. It's because remembrance addresses the sins of omission. Remembrance addresses things that are supposed to be there that aren't. You don't have to remember anything if it's staring you in the face like a sin of commission, something overtly out of place. You don't have to, you know, if the Lord says, hey, 
don't put this here. And I go, it's right there. But if he says, put that thing there, and I never look there, do you see the difference? One requires examination. The other one's right there. So forgetting God is an omission issue. Omissions, something absent, are often much harder to realize than commissions, something present. The only way to discern omission is through diligent self-examination and survey. And that's what James 1, 23 and 24 was getting up here on the board. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. But once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So there's value in actually doing examination, not just hearing the convicting word, but like a lesson like today, and we haven't even got to the good stuff yet. Some of it, anyways. A lesson like today, while you might be wholly convicted, if, I'm the, if this is the mirror and you're looking at yourself openly because you know, you know, you're filled with the Spirit and you're looking at the pastor who's likewise, and, you know, you got the environment of the church, and then as soon as you turn around and walk out that door, you forget what you look like. You never do the commands, which is examine yourself to see if something's not right, something that's not there that should be there in your own life. This is what the Spirit's getting at. You're that person. Now, getting back to the woman pleading her case in court. Suppose her baby didn't die in that car that day. Nobody would have been the wiser. But I'd be willing to bet that when she figured out what she'd done to her baby, she'd have rushed up to it, clung to it for dear life, and pleaded, please forgive me my dear child. Please forgive mommy's absent-mindedness. I can see it. Most of you are parents can relate. You know, when you look this way and your kid ran through traffic and somehow they didn't get squashed, and you ran over there screaming like a wild woman or a wild man, just happy they're alive, and they beat their butt. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You scared me! I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Relax. God, people. Right? So you can see that woman rushing to her child after she figured out that she'd forgotten and saying, please forgive me. Mommy's distracted, trying to multitask it. You know what the Bible calls that attitude in that moment? You ready for a big word? Yep. That's what it's called. When you realize something's there that shouldn't be, or you realize something's not there that should be, and you're stricken with it, that's what we call repentance. A a true believer hates sin, whether it's omission or commission. 
We hate it. That's one of the ways that I've taught you over the last year plus now that you know you're even saved. You have a truly a changed heart, which is now a what we would call theologically a repentant heart. We are always repenting from sin because we hate it. We have been changed. We have been made alive. So anything dead, spiritual death, sin is the, in the fingerprint of spiritual death. Anything that even harkens back to spiritual death, we hate it. This thing still has power over us, right? It's penalty, power, and presence of sin. Remember we studied that? That's what salvation was. Deliverance from penalty. That's salvation. The power, this is life. And then the presence, which is heaven. That's what we talked about when we learned about salvation. We hate it. We're in the power zone right now. It's, it still has some power over us. So we hate it, and that's what repentance is. So if we get distracted, what do we do? We repent. The powerful thing about repentance, biblically speaking, is that it always involves issues of life and death. That's the powerful thing about repentance. It always involves issues of life and death. Let me explain. At salvation, it precedes saving faith, which implies deliverance from death itself for all of eternity, from the penalty of sin, as we've learned in our last series in depth. And then after salvation... Repentance precedes our deliverance from the power of sin. So you see, it's a true statement that repentance always involves issues of life and death. Hence its value. And hence it being, let's face it, an earmark of a truly saved, changed individual. In both cases, we must remember where we have come from. As Revelation 2.5 says, as we've studied this past week, therefore remember where, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember where, from where you have fallen and repent. Therefore, we are able to conclude from the Word of God that remembrance induces repentance. That's the value of it. Remember, we're on the question, why? Why? Why does the Spirit keep bringing this up? Why? Because repentance precedes things of life and death. Do you get it? If you don't, if something's there, if God says something's supposed to be there and it's not in your life, then you are closer to the throes, the power of spiritual death living in sin potentially in a way that you're not paying attention and you're wondering why you don't have the full peace the Lord promised, the deliverance you're expecting. It's because you don't take the time to self-examine yourself. You're out drifting. La, 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 la. You're out whatever, doing something. And it feels good. We'll get to that in a moment. feels good. It feels good because you're like, la, you know. You know when you're on like the the little rafting and the ocean's going, you're like, whee! And it just sort of like rocks you, and you're like, ah, oh, yeah. Don't spill my drink. Got one of those little custom drink holders that like swing. 
You know what I'm saying? They're the two axes things, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> My dad used to have them all over his boat. He'd be like, whoa, and his like, sombrero would be like perfect. He'd be like, whoa, whoa, and he'd be like this. We're all like, right? <laughs> Poor dad. But that's how we get lulled. Isn't this nice? Yeah, isn't it nice? You're three miles offshore now. So we're supposed to remember these things. We're supposed to repent from these things. Why? Because those are the things that precede deliverance. <clears throat> Remembering our salvation in every sense, every day, is integral to our daily repentance. The Spirit's ministry is to bring to your remembrance the words of our Lord, John 14, 26. Light, therefore, this is light, exposes the deeds of darkness, Ephesians 5, 11, stirring our distaste for sin even, hence our motivation to repent from it, to turn from it. I don't like that at all. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that my, my entire, you know, 300-piece tool set was down to three. <laughs> Whose fault is that? It's mine for not, ex- for not examining, for not inventorying it. A lot of things missing. <laughs> I was out, la, 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 la. And then the final nerve. The Spirit plucked on on this subject this past Thursday regarding the question, why all these lessons on remembrance? You ready? This is everyone's favorite. Kids. Kids. Okay, get the squirming out. Everybody go like this. All you parents, before you start shooting daggers at me, stretch it out. Kids. Now, I know that some of you parents out there are like, hands off, mister. Don't even talk about my kids. To you I say, shut up and listen, for it's not my word I'm teaching here. And by the way, frankly speaking, they were God's children long before they were yours. So maybe God Himself is saying to you from this anointed vessel of His, hands off, mister. (gasps) That's my child we're talking about. So here's another scripture from the latest blog entry for those of you who have ungodly reactions to my addressing your kids from this pulpit. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4.7. 1 Thessalonians 4.7. Frankly, again, they were gods long before they were yours. You're going to take them and then not raise them up the way our Father in Heaven desires for you to raise them up? The way the Word describes what it means to raise that gift. This is what we're going to say. Hands off, God. I think not. First Thessalonians 4.7 For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, 
but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. I gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints. What does that mean? It means towards the direction of sanctification. We were not called for this purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Some of you are parents. Some of you have been given the grace gift of children. But they're God's children. And they were His children before they were yours. And they're even much more. So he who rejects these things is not rejecting man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You're not rejecting me. In other words, all the Spirit's inserting here is a friendly reminder. Don't make this about Pastor Ed. Don't say, well, that's his opinion. Don't say, that. well, that's you know, how he thinks. It. No, don't do that. Because I'm going to show you chapter and verse. And you, there's, it's impossible to squirm out of <laughs> you know, the, the rod. I mean, the word is like the rod, right? And the sheep, as they come back into the fold, they're held under the rod. And you're being tapped. I don't care. I don't like it. You're talking about my kids, mister. They're not even here. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. I know. That's the point. But again, he who rejects us is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So I submit to all you parents who think this vessel or this pulpit has no right to address the issue of your children with you, you are sadly mistaken. There is nothing off limits when it comes to the Word of God. I'm not interested, just for the record, just so you know. I love you enough to do these lessons, but I'm not interested in driving to your house or you know, trying to tell you how to raise your kids. That's between you and the Lord. I'm here to tell you the truth. You got a problem? The problem's not with me, so stop it. I know it's easier to make it about me, you know, and I know there are a bunch of candy-budded wimps that shouldn't even be standing behind a pulpit that will tell you something much nicer. But I'm not that guy. If you want your little ego stroked as a parent, go somewhere else. There's lots of people that will, oh, it's okay. So you are sadly mistaken. Up here on the board with that said, forgetting God and His omission issue, have you forgotten to train up your children to be grateful even? For example, this Christmas, will your children be more grateful for Jesus or the presents they receive? I'm serious. Seems like nobody seems to be asking these questions anymore. Deuteronomy 4.9 only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. You know, remember. Oh, and then impress what you've learned when you remember onto your kids. Look at this. Your sons and your what? Grandsons. There's a family structure. Do you see? There's a whole family structure. You know the will of God, don't you? You do. This is not about Pastor Ed. This is not about 
trying to find some loophole and, well, the scripture doesn't say that. Oh, no, 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 no. You know the will of God, don't you? You know what he wants for families. You know how he structured them. You know what the word of God says about them. You know exactly what he wants for families. So the final question on the table is for you parents out there regarding raising your kids. <coughs> if you're not raising up your children in the faith, that's what we theologically call a sin of omission. If you're a believer and you're not raising up your children in the faith, that's what we theologically call a sin of omission. Because that's what it was called to do. Your children are a gift. They were a gift from God. They're Let's just say, for lack of a better term, first father, real father, everlasting father. So if you're not raising them up, that's actually a sin of omission. And we saw that God's heart on the matter when it comes to family extends not just to immediate children, but also grandchildren. How beautiful is it when there's that weird gap Parents, you know, parents, godly parents, somehow ungodly children, and the grandparents somehow managed to train up the, the grandchildren. Reminds me of um, Timothy, but whatever. Um, that's a beautiful thing. Somehow even, you know, grandchildren are affected by their grandparents. So we all have this sense of understanding what God wants for families. Don't get all weird and theological and try to find loopholes. Well, see, this is why I don't have to, because it doesn't say that right here, you know. you know. You know the heart of God. If you've been just reading your Bible and being honest and open about what you see in Scripture, you know exactly what God wants for families. Amen? You know what He wants. You don't need me to stand up here and pontificate with multisyllabic sentences about man-made theological words to help justify whatever it is you feel needs justified. You don't need me up here to do that because you already know. And that's all the Spirit's saying. The Word demands that believers train their children, encouraging and disciplining as necessary in the faith. That's not Pastor Ed. That's the Word. And it demands it. And you notice I said believers, because we're talking about believers. This is encapsulated in the words of Joshua, who said in 24, Joshua 24, 15, part B, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And just, you know, a lot of people have this like over their doorways, and it, it looks good on a plaque, and, you know, it's kind of neat. Um, but notice the word says, my house. My house. Not just my children. My house. You, okay, do I really need to put a definition up here for house? So let's make it very practical, since there seems to be no room for wiggling out of what the word has to say about a believer's responsibility to their children as unto the Lord, to our Father's children, frankly. Since you are all called to imitate my faith, that's Hebrews 3, 7, 
then any scripture that holds my life up to a microscope must in turn be considered pertinent in your own, at least to some degree. Now it seems apparent that pastors and elders and even deacons are held up to a higher standard, so to speak, if that's the right word even. We're supposed to exemplify all the more. I mean, if the Word of God's going to say imitate that person's faith, then he's certainly not going to have a duffel bag. He doesn't, God doesn't want duffel bags. Do you understand? God doesn't want train wrecks for the rest of His children to imitate. He's going to raise up people. He's going to promote people. He's going to anoint people that actually you can look at. We're not perfect. But we are called this way. Whether I like it or not, that's the way it is. And if you think I'm a complete moron, then find somebody you don't think is a complete moron. So whether you like it or not, Scripture ties you to the Scripture that ties me to the Lord when it comes to my household. Well, what does the Bible say about a pastor's household? Well, up here on the board, I'll give you a definition first. A house and its occupants regarded as a unit. That's the definition of household. A house and its occupants regarded as a unit. Okay? Conclusion. Husband, wife, children, regardless of age, are held to the biblical standard within the, quote, household. That's what a household is. You're in that household, there's a standard. So says what? The Word of God. Not Pastor Ed. So says the Word of God. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 is for pastors. 1 Timothy 3, 12-13 for deacons. I'm also going to take you to Titus here in a moment. But go to 1 Timothy 3, 4, where we see Scripture. Now, look, you know, in many ways, just to act silly for a moment, you know, it'd be a little, my life would be a little less scrutinized if there wasn't actually Scripture. Right? But there's actually Scripture. And I can either maintain my integrity to Scripture and say, well, faith of a child, plainly stated Scripture, or I can't. But you know the right thing. You know what God's will is for us when it comes to reading Scripture that's plainly stated theology? 1 Timothy 3, 4, He, the pastor, the elders, if you would, must be one who manages his own household. We just learned what a household is. That's me and everybody in it. Well, well, it means intrinsically good in the Greek. Good. And we're talking about, look, Paul's not writing to a bunch of unbelievers. Paul's writing to a pastor. Do you understand? This is a very godly conversation. Remember context like I've been teaching you? The context here is very godly. So when it says his own household well, he's talking about well in the eyes of who? The Lord. So don't try to slip out and say, well, you know, they're not killing anybody. What does God want for a household? What did, you, what did Joshua say? As for me and my house, we served who? The Lord. You know what the Spirit's saying to you this morning. So don't play games. This is a very godly conversation. He must be one who manages household, his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. 
But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Does that really require any pontificating? Do I really need to go to the Greek? Do I really need to say anything more than what Scripture already says? Can we just be honest with each other? Is it not obvious what the Word's saying? Isn't it just obvious? How in the world are we going to promote a moron to stand behind a pulpit where other Scripture, Hebrews specifically, says imitate that guy's faith? If he has no control over his own household, if his household is a complete mess, if his kids are complete train wrecks, how are we going to promote him? He can't take care of his own household, the little one down the street. And we're going to put him in front of a big one like this and tell all them, imitate his faith? <laughs> Can we just be honest here? Okay. Let me borrow from somebody else in case you're flipping out right now at the ball guy. You shouldn't be, but just in case. MacArthur on this, an elder must first prove in the intimacy and exposure of his own home his ability to lead others to salvation and sanctification. All I can tell you on that front is that is the centerpiece of my house. The gospel is the centerpiece of my house. And if you come in my house and you upset my centerpiece, we're going to have words. We're literally going to have words. And they may not be pleasant. But this is my house. And the Lord gave it to me. And He gave me commands. Do you understand? To manage my own house. How? Intrinsically good. Well. Does that require um, explanation to anybody? Because I'm honest to goodness. If anybody in here is struggling with this, I will talk one-on-one with you at length to help you understand what Scripture has to say. But I don't think it's necessary. I think what happens is people don't want it. They don't like this Scripture. They may not be very fond of how plain it is and how obvious it is and how convicting it is. Anyways, an elder must first prove in the intimacy and exposure of his own home his ability to lead others to salvation and sanctification. There he proves God has gifted him uniquely to spiritually set the example of virtue, to serve others, resolve conflicts, build unity, and maintain love. If he cannot do those essential things there, why, that's supposed to be a why, not way, why would anyone assume he would be able to do them in the church? I mean, doesn't that make sense? It's a fortiori, remember, for you Latin nuts? Right? If you can do the greater, you can do the lesser type thing. Or, or how about this one? The scripture we just learned, um, you're faithful in a little thing, I'll give you more. Right? God says, let me test you in a little thing first, you know, like that house down the street, before I give you a big house to tend, where well, there's a bunch of crazy people. Jeez, people! Relax. Relax. The Spirit wants to drive this point home even further. Oh, joy. Look, if you're uncomfortable, 
How would you like to have daggers looking at you right now? <laughs> Remember Terminator? Remember his red eyes? Yeah. Some of you are uh, like steel right now. So he wants to drive it home further. <clears throat> and I'll say, do not attempt to impose your own personal feelings. Feelings, there it is on any of this. If you're going to read Scripture with the faith of a child and believe what is plainly stated in the inspired Word of God, then do just that without, without partiality. It means I don't care that God doesn't care how much you so-called feel you love your kids. It doesn't matter. Or how much you think you'd like to redefine a household. It doesn't matter. And scripture is Scripture. So do what he's asking you to do without partiality. Hold your thumb. Let's see what else Scripture has to say about a pastor's household. Okay? And do not lose that connective tissue. Imitate his faith. Don't lose that connective tissue. Okay? Hold your thumb. Go to Titus 1.5. 1.5. Because here's the thing. God's not going to ask these things of the, quote, exemplary example, the ones he anoints, if his heart isn't consistent for all of you, for everyone. Do you understand? He's saying, look, I'm going to hold these guys up to, you know, under scrutiny, but I want you to look at them. They're not perfect, but I want you to seriously look at them. And I don't want you to promote people that, you know, are new to the faith because they're going to tumble. I don't want you to promote people that don't have their own house in order. I don't want you to do that thing. Okay, makes sense to me. Titus 1.5. For this reason I left you, he's talking to Titus in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, pastors in other words, in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, a husband of one wife, having what? That what? Oh, whoa, wait, what? That's in Scripture? Yep. So what is Paul telling Titus? He's like, look, don't put a guy behind a pulpit whose, family's, whose household is not in order, who has children who don't believe. Really? Okay, um, let me read it again to you, with you, because this is Scripture, not Pastor Ed. What does the Scripture say? Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, have, having children who believe. I, I don't know what else to say, but other than that Scripture. Is it not? Okay. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Eww. Okay. So, reading Scripture with the faith of a child and believing what is plainly stated, what say you of having children who believe? Don't answer. That's between you and the Lord. But I would add, isn't it obvious? I think it is. If we passed as are supposed to be examples to the flock... What is God's impression upon all of you when He gives us such a clear picture of the example's household? In other words, if I'm supposed to be your example, in other words, take what He's telling me in Scripture and apply it in your own lives. What is His desire for your house? Of course He desires you as a believer to have children that are believers too. Now, Scripture clearly says let's not promote people unless that's the case. 
But let's elevate our thinking for a moment. These are, this is, you, what you're seeing is God's will for the family structure, for the believers. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. Those aren't vapid words, you see. He wants you to understand that he wants households to be godly. And he wants you, if you're a parent, especially the men, to lead it. And what does lead mean? If you've ever been a leader in any way, shape, or form, sometimes you have to take this foot and insert it up that butt. No, I'm serious. Hey, that's the last time you're coming in my house and you're, topping, you're toppling over the centerpiece of my house, which is the gospel. It's not going to happen anymore. It's the last time it's going to happen. Do you understand? There's going to be pressure to do, not merely hear who delude themselves, but to do God's will. Is that fair? What's God's will for the family then, for a believer? To have a godly structure. Is that fair? Okay. Isn't it obvious then what he's saying to all of you? Not just to me. He wants a godly structure. And if he's going to raise some of you up, eventually, I don't know, who knows, to be shepherds, then let us not do that thing until this is in place. Because now this thing has to become the example for the next generation. That's why. You see? You don't need a whole lot of um, doctrine, do you? To understand what the Spirit's saying. You know the will of God. You know God wants believers in their households, anybody who lives in the house, to be rightly oriented to the Lord. Amen? Okay. We are talking about God expressing His will here. So do not look for little loopholes in order to avoid addressing any dysfunction. And I'm not judging you. Don't look for little loopholes to avoid addressing any dysfunction in your own households. All right. Pressing on now. How about deacons being pastors' right-hand men? All right, go back to 1 Timothy 3.12. 1 Timothy 3.12. We only have two here, one with kids, one without. 1 Timothy 3.12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children in their own households. We know the will of the Lord. So that means deacons are held up to this standard as well in Scripture. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we also have direct scripture for deacons as well. Now that may make DJ uncomfortable. That may make Don uncomfortable. But I say to them, more quickly than I'll ever say to any of you, Suck it up. Too bad. You want to stand this close to the fire? 
suck it up. That's not my, if you know me very well, if you know any good shepherd very well, the closer you get to him, the more you get to that. Is that fair, DJ? <laughs> He's laughing. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's why a lot of people come really close to me and they go, Phew. Oh, yeah, I totally want to be in the inner circle. No way. <laughs> I love you, Pastor. I want to get close to you. Oh, my God, that guy's crazy. <laughs> Great, love me from a distance. That's 99% of my life anyways. So the deacons also have a direct calling on their lives, whether they like it or not. And as I mentioned earlier, just because you may not be a pastor or a deacon, because Scripture says imitate the pastor's faith, the implication is that while we are held to a higher practical standard, the standard still exists for all of you. What is the standard? We might just say it's the will of God. Is that fair? That's the standard for a a godly household. That's the standard. You know His will. You'd have to be really intent on avoiding the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit in order to not see what God's will is for the believer's family. You'd have to be intent. You'd have to, in other words, you'd have to try. You know, like the word suppress in Romans 1. You'd have to suppress the truth actively, daily, not to see what God's will is for the believer's family. And that's just some scripture. I could keep going with it, right? Old Testament, New Testament, it's obvious. The last thing I'll say on this point regarding households and kids is very simple. And don't just be convicted by it. Take practical steps to address it. Especially if you are the man of the house. And this is where we ended on Thursday. And it stands as sort of a summary and a transition point back to our primary course of study regarding grace and works. Let me just say this. This morning's lesson, though parts of it are difficult to chew on, is a grace gift. That's what he's saying. It's a grace gift, all of it. You know, weren't we just like family this morning? Laughing. You know, not much laughing. <laughs> Crossing our arms, uncrossing our arms, you know. Throwing daggers, I forgive you. Throwing more daggers, I forgive you again. You know, maybe it'll be fun someday if, you know, he says, all right, you're done. You've done, you've finished the course, you're done. You go sit down out there and I'm going to raise this other guy up and I can be like, (laughs) I'm like the worst guy ever. I'll sit right next to Joey. Right? I'll be the worst congregant ever. (laughs) No, I wouldn't. Just know that lessons like this, they're grace gifts. Some of you might be off balance or even a little uncomfortable, but here's the thing, and listen closely. Grace orientation, understanding God's grace truly, um, embracing it, etc., promotes integrity. Integrity is, you know, integrity functions. Do you understand? It's one thing to have integrity here, understand the right thing to do, 
But what does the Word of God say, James 4, 17? If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, well, that's a sin. So it's one thing to know the right thing, but it's another thing to have integrity and actually do it. Yeah. A person who is satisfied with God's grace will function in integrity. Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. That's how you know you have it. So what the Spirit's saying here as we wrap up this brief series on remembering the grace of God, I believe it's the same thing He's been telling us in the parent series, Grace and Works. He's saying, look, get the definition of my grace correctly positioned in your soul, which includes a righteous definition and perspective on it, and then exercise integrity toward that which you know to be true. Get it right, accept it, and then exercise integrity towards that which you know to be true. I can't tell you, nor do I want to, how to apply these things in your own lives. That's between you and the Lord. My job is to point things out as clearly as possible, even when the truth is making many of you flop around like fish on the deck of a boat. And I say this also, while taking all of this to heart, understand how very serious the Spirit is about impressing the Word upon you. But, but, you ready? Don't ever let it debilitate you. Does that make sense? Take it. Take it on the chin. God knows I have to. You saw the Scripture that I have to live up to. Take it on the chin. Understand that it's God's will. He already knows you're a a mess. (laughs) He already knows you've failed. He already knows... You want to fill in the blank? Go ahead. Because the more I say, the more people... He's talking about me. I knew it. (laughs) Right? You know what I mean? I've been accused of that many, many times. Why are you talking about me? What? For real? You self-absorbed person. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about everybody. Everybody's a jackass. Me too, right? So don't... These can sometimes be heavy, right? And they're sensitive because God's saying, look, yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm going to actually venture into your household. I'm actually going to go into your home where you're like, no, no, no. This is my house. These are my kids. You hands off, mister. And he's like, No. They were my kids before they were yours. You're renting them, for back, lack of a better term, right? They're on loan to you. I'm going to go into your house, and I'm going to show you things. I'm going to ask you to examine things. Sometimes it's going to be like this. You see that? It's not supposed to be there. Take it out. Okay. You see that? No, I don't. That's right. It's supposed to be there. So put it there. Okay. So that's what he's saying. Your houses are not off limits. You understand? Your your homes, your children, your responsibilities to them, they're not off limits. You know what the Lord wants for your households. And you can go ahead and try to do gymnastics and all this kind of thing, but you're going to be oppressed as you're trying to use your human strength to hold up your justified ridiculousness in your household. 
because God's a lot stronger than you. But thank God he's patient so you don't go like one of those presses in the junkyard. Right? He doesn't want to do that. You ready? Because God is gracious and merciful. And he says, I'm going to press down on you and you're not going to like it. But I'm not going to squash you until you're debilitated. I don't want to cripple you. I'm trying to help you out. I'm not trying to make it so that you can't move anymore. You've already been dead. I've made you alive. I just want you to recognize what's going on. So please, even after lessons like this, and I know for some of you they're really heavy. I think of myself and my deacons even. They're really heavy on us. We have to look and examine. But I don't want you to be debilitated. I don't want you to walk out of here like, I just quit. Don't do that. It's not what this is about. So what I mean to say, learn to keep your chin up. Seriously. Keep your chin up. Even if you find out you've been sinning your tail off regarding, say, sins of omission. You didn't know, now you know. You're playing games, now you're not. You were getting out on a technicality, now you're not. You were justifying ridiculousness, now you can't anymore. Okay? With that said, we shared a few chuckles together on Thursday regarding this falling exclamation. Oh, that's grace. Oh, that's grace. Wait a minute. I know we like to say this, but how often is it true? How often is it true? In other words, to our previous point, how often does man's fleshly desires proclaim grace instead of his integrity to the Word? What the Spirit is getting at is the very real idea that people misappropriate. This is the final thought, so hang in there. People misappropriate things given to them by the world as grace. And that's only because they perceive it somehow as good or it is accommodating to their lives if they call it grace. But the Spirit's been asking us to honestly examine ourselves with the divine measuring rod, which is the Word. In other words, before we can make the claim on the board, oh, that's grace, we should always step back and evaluate the circumstances. Remember, as we've been learning for quite some time now, life has context. Your life has context. So we should always step back and check our motivation. And we should always step back and compare these things to the only thing that can shed light on them, which is Holy Scripture. You want to talk about households? Let's talk about households. What's the Word have to say? We just saw some of it. You want to talk about kids? What's the word say about kids? We just saw it. You want to talk about parenting? We just saw it. You want to talk about you, me, up, down, sideways? It's in, it's in the Word of God. That's why I adore it. I love the Word of God because everything's there. And all God's saying is, by grace, I'm giving it to you, but if I'm going to give you something by grace, have the integrity to uphold it. Have the integrity to do it. Don't just look in the mirror and go, and walk away. For real. And this, I promised this, and this is why I took it so far, but I'm, I guess I'm kind of tired, and I know some of you can <clears throat> relate. I'm tired of hearing people say, it feels so right. 
It feels right when, frankly, strong feelings this way or that aren't even necessary to exercise integrity. I mean, you might have feelings that come along with integrity, like you know that God moved you to do a certain thing and literally someone benefited like yesterday at the park or whatever, you know, like this morning's message, you know. That might bring you a joy, but that was within God's will. But we don't get to say, well, since it feels right, it feels good, it must be God's will. That's a huge mistake. I want to close with a lovely passage. Go to Ephesians 4.17, and then I promise I'll close. Ephesians 4.17. And let's just read it. Let's just read it. Faith of a child, right? Let's just read it. I'm not going to say much about it. I'm just going to read it with you. And in light of all that he said to us this morning, just read it with me. Right? Let's, and just be practical. Just say, all right, this is what, obviously this is what God wants for me. So, all right, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been bought, uh, taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which, is the, in, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let me just say a couple of things before we get into communion service. Do not give the devil an opportunity. How might we do this? In light of what we've learned this morning, how might we do this? We forget. We're supposed to be looking at the Lord. We look over here. Now we just opened up the door. That's how. That's how. We forget the grace of God. The mo- one of the most, frankly, the most magnetic things about God is that He's so gracious and loving. And Satan counterfeits it. But I love you too. You know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Hey, I got a question for anybody. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I don't care if I do. What if I happened to headshots? Like, what if I happened to, hey, this is me on Facebook? No, it's, hey, hey! What the heck? I'm talking about Scott. <laughs> I'm like, Scott, put a shirt on, dude. It's got his, like, gold medallion. It's like tufts of hair sticking out. He's like, Italy rules. And I'm like, dude, what are you, you got a selfie pole? I'm like, oh, where do you even find that thing? But he says it's good because it says, like, John 3.16 on the selfie pole. <laughs> I 
I'm being silly, but I don't even know how I got on that. But how we, we forget, how do we give the devil an opportunity? We forget about the Lord, who has shown us grace. Our eyes are diverted from Christ, and since we cannot multitask, even though we like to believe in the illusion, we have opened up the door to Satan. So that's all he's saying. He said, just remember all the grace I've given you. You won't want to look anywhere else. I'm your husband. I love you. Right? I'm your husband. There's no one better than me. So stop looking everywhere else. This is why we had these four lessons on remaining Lord's grace up here, or remembering Lord's grace. Last principle. Not only should we appreciate and respond to God's grace always, we must always compare it honestly and with integrity to all of God's word. In other words, get it right. And when you see it, have, some di- you know, have the dignity, have the integrity to abide in it. Remember, grace accommodates God, not man. And we'll get back to grace and works next time, I think. Gentlemen, grab the elements, please. <clears throat> we'll celebrate communion. Chairs. Thank you for that. Rug carpet cleaners are expensive. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. As this Christmas season begins to roll around, let us remember, nay, let us demand that our households worship the real reason for the celebration. Let us not compromise giving space to Satan Claus 
or his evil little elves on the shelves. Let us draw the line in the sand, beginning in our own souls. And then let us state clearly as Joshua did. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If we don't demand respect for our Lord, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, starting in our own households, who will, my friends? Who will? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's take the bread and remembering the person of the Lord. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me, in remembrance of His work. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We got a video. Father said, let there be light. You obeyed when he whispered, son, you have to leave tonight. To spend nine months in a mother's womb, three days in a borrowed tomb. But it's the
close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time spent together, for this pre- precious moment that you've ordained from eternity past so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge that is you. Father, thank you for pressing us down as required. We might be perplexed, but not crushed. We know that your mercy, your grace, and your love are behind all of your activities, including the convicting ministry of the Spirit as he takes the precious word and parts it to our souls. Thank you, Father. Thank you for ordaining this plan. Thank you for revealing to us the truth about life itself, that it's short, that it's precious, that it's a grace gift, that every moment of every day, every breath that we take, every time we even venture out into it, though we are not of it, we are in it, we are graced out with the opportunity to communicate your gospel. We are not ashamed of that gospel, for it is the power unto salvation. We do ask for traveling mercies as we venture out into a lost and dying world, Father, that needs that gospel so very badly. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.